Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. But we finished it, so now we're talking about Bible stories that aren't actually in the Bible. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nico. And let's get biblical. You got it. Reminder, this is not a Christian Bible study podcast. And it's not appropriate for children. With that out of the way, Nico, what are we talking about today? Now that we've finished all 66 books in the Bible— we know about Jesus. We know about Jacob. We know about just all, to name two. Just to name two of the many scintillating characters we met in the canonical Bible. What are we talking about today? Well, today is a brave and beautiful new day because it's the dawn of season three. Season three. And we're going to be talking about stories that seem like they should be in the Bible but aren't. Starting with? Number one on the list is The Fall of Satan. The Fall of Satan. Chronologically first in the list, although we are no longer bound to any chronology. That's true. Nor any text. Mm -hmm. We're on our own. We're free-balling it. Yeah, your human time means nothing to us now. And uh, we've chosen to talk about The Fall of Satan. Now, before we get into the knit grit, as I call it. Mm -hmm. You got to save time. You're a busy man. What kind of memories do you have of learning about the fall of Satan? Or like, what what did you know about the fall of Satan when you were a young religious chillum? So actually, this is interesting because um, something I have in my notes here, actually, is that different Christian denominations uh, deal with the devil differently. I was raised Presbyterian, um, now an atheist, forgot to mention that. Mm-hmm. And the devil was not a big deal. In not my a big church. deal. So I actually never literally believed in a like a, a literal devil. Mm. I thought only of a symbolic devil. Right. When I was growing up. Now, some people in my church probably did believe in a literal devil, but that wasn't like a big thing. So along with that, you didn't know about his story, about his backstory. No, not at all. Okay. But like there's plenty of American Christians who that's a huge focus, you know. True. And yeah. why not? Because he's such a compelling antagonist. <laughs> yeah. So before we talk about his fall, I want to talk about who this man goat is. Yes, we've talked a little bit about Satan in the Bible before in our previous seasons Mm -hmm. um, and how he's conceived of differently during different time periods. Mm -hmm. So sometimes he's, you know, the accusing angel who God put in this role with the purpose of testing humans faith. You kind of see that in the book of Job. Um, and then later he more becomes like God's enemy who's trying to defeat God in this battle of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And if I may, I'd like to take your points and jump off them. Whoa. Like such as a diving board. Mm, perhaps a backyard trampoline. Perhaps. Because I want to talk a little bit about who Satan was <laughs> in the old Jewish Bible. Okay. 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 That's fine. In early Judaism. By the way, Nico's the non-believing sort of Jew. That's me. What up? So in Hebrew, Satan just mm-hmm. means an adversary or an obstacle. Yes. Many times in the Tanakh, the word Satan is used with no definite article, meaning just like a an adversary or whatever. And in just those, like an obstacle yeah. preventing you from getting to work. On time. Right. Several times it is used with the definite article, meaning the Satan, Satan, Mr. Satan. Let's say. (laughs) Mr. Satan was my father. And a couple of those times, like one of them that you mentioned already was in Job, where Satan actually does some stuff. He has a whole conversation with God, et cetera, et cetera. Another time is in Zechariah, when Joshua is brought before an accusing angel, described as an accusing angel, and named the Satan. So, like in early Judaism, 
the concept of this accusing angel was like he was a part of God or at least a part of God's organization. Yeah. You know, God, God created this role for him. Right. And put him in it. That's right. The role was created for him. It's a really great opportunity with a lot of room for growth. <laughs> now, we're not just looking for anyone to fill this position. So even in Genesis, a place that I would think, you know, they would specifically mention Satan tempting Eve, let's say, mm-hmm. never mentioned. Yeah, it just is the serpent. It just never a little says... snack. Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, and most traditions have identified that serpent with Satan, you know, including Jewish traditions from very early on. Mm-hmm. But it does not say that in the Bible. I was perusing the Jewish encyclopedia, Whoa. as I am wont to do. <laughs> and I came upon a very interesting interpretation of when this might have shifted between this idea of Satan as just a part of God's crew mm-hmm. and an independent force of evil, which is much more like the oppositional character Satan that we know and, let's face it, love today. Frankly love. So there's a part in Chronicles where David, King David, that is, is moved to request an illegal census. Do you remember this? Yes, of course. (laughs) And it's dealt with very briefly in the book, and it's very confusing. But he asks for a census, and it leads to a plague. That passage starts with, God inciting David to call the census. Yes. But earlier versions of the same text indicated that it was the adversary that did it. Yeah, we see that there's the difference between uh, in Kings and in Chronicles. Right. One says that God told him to do this census and that it was sinful. Thanks God for nothing. And the other says that Satan made him do it. So clearly between the two, there was some shift. And some people think that shift is, in fact, the exile because Jewish writers are out there picking up brand new ideas, integrating lots of new traditions, especially Zoroastrian ones, which yes. was the dominant religion in the empire in which they were exiled. Yes. So for, for anybody who doesn't remember from our first two seasons, or specifically from our first season where we talked about the Babylonian exile, every single episode it felt like uh, that was when uh, Babylon took over uh, Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and exiled everybody for 66 years until Persia took over and let them go back to Jerusalem. Right. And, and so in that of course, process... They... Zoroastrianism is from ancient Persia. So in that process, they're picking up a bunch of new mythologies, checking out fresh gods, fresh, you know, takes on the whole system. The whole divinity game. Right. Um, and one of those integrations might have been this idea of a counterpoint to God that is pure evil. Hmm. During that same period, during that exile period, is when a lot of some, a lot of other Jewish pseudepigrapha is dated to as well. The pseudepigrapha, you say? The important ones. For example, Book of Enoch, Book of Jubilees. Mm-hmm. There's another one whose name I don't remember. It's called like Wisdom of Moses or something. Something like that. We didn't read that one. No, but you can go back and listen to our Enoch episode if you want some hot secret knowledge yes and that's that's where we've talking talking mm-hmm. that's where we've talking that's where we've talked about fallen angels before that's right so in enoch some angels better known to us as the evil fuck angels mm-hmm. uh decide to go down to earth to bring humans forbidden knowledge and to have sex with human women there's no inciting incident they just decide just for that a looks larf, fun you know yeah and, uh, of course, their children are a race of monstrous cannibalistic giants. And uh, those are those are the, called the Nephilim. They're, the Nephilim are mentioned very briefly in the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, God tries to wipe them out with the flood. But there's still a few left after the flood. But, but the Israelites get the rest of them. Anyway, one of the things that these pseudepigraphal books do is establish the idea that there are fallen angels, like you said. And they describe it in great detail when... The idea of fallen angels is only briefly mentioned in what's left of the canonical Bible now. In Enoch, the lead angel is identified as both Azazel and Satanael. Yes. Two names for an angel that basically started a rebellion against God and brought an army of angels and lost. And as I mentioned in the Enoch episode, Azazel still means, like in in modern Hebrew, to say damn it, you say Le'azazel. So... Here you can see the the different threads of early Judaism combining Mm -hmm. where you're trying to integrate some of these ideas about this like oppositional evil dude with the existing text. So they're sort of filling in details, you know, like 
brief mentions in Genesis about the sons of God coming down to earth and creating the Nephilim can like get greatly build that out expanded outside of the Bible. Similarly, the fall of Satan is briefly mentioned in the canonical Bible a couple times. Uh, in Luke ten eighteen, Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, and Revelation, of course, has a couple of verses about Satan as the great dragon who was uh, who was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And that story in Revelation is very similar to a sort of Jewish folk tale um, that was written down in a couple places, most notably in some of the texts from that sweet dead sea. Oh. One of those secret scrolls. <laughs> Um, so I I don't know anything about the Jewish mythological version of this. All I know is the brief mentions in the Bible, and you are now going to educate me on that. I will do my gosh darn best, my dear. Well, that's all I can ask from you. So there are basically two versions of the story in Jewish folklore, basically, okay. two dominant versions. In the first one, Satan is God's greatest angel. He's beautiful and blameless uh, until somewhere around the second day of creation. <laughs> he sins for some reason. Okay. I and, mean, one day of creation could be like a million years. We don't know. That's, that's fair. God's on a different timeline. Uh, and because of his sin, he decides to set his throne higher than God's. You know, he's like, I'm impressed with what God's done so far, but I think I can do better. Hmm. Which... I admire that kind of gumption and <laughs> that kind of moxie attitude. However, God did not admire it. So Satan brought an army of angels to battle with God's lost, and God sent him to live forever in Sheol. Which, Sheol. which is like sort of the abyss. Yes. It's like it's like an early Hebrew version of hell, but it's not it's not really hell the way that it's we think of it It's closer to purgatory. It's yeah, it's just kind of uh, a nothingness. Cuz later they clarify in some of the other pseudepigraphal books that Sheol is where everybody who's dead has to wait for judgment day. Yes. So it's right. sort of like purgatory. The point is it's dull as heck down there. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. And a place where no right-minded angel would want to be. The second version of this story Satan is also still one of God's top angels. People can't seem to get over that, considering in the Bible he, like, has conversations with God. Yeah. Uh, he's also blameless until the sixth day now. Okay. When Adam is created. Okay. God tells the angels to bow before his newest and greatest creation, Adam. You know, he says, this is my son. that I made him in my image. He's, like, the best thing I've ever made. So angels... Take the knee. Take the knee. He's top of the chain now. And as you can imagine, Satan is not happy about that at all. Because <laughs> he was he used to be the second the second biggest. At least God. at least the most beautiful, blameless angel. Okay. <laughs> everybody's beautiful, big, blameless angels. Everybody's the big best angels. <laughs> on blamelessness. Okay. I don't know why that's such a good trait. <laughs> I'm gonna write it out though. Okay. Again, Satan raises a host of angels, goes to battle with God, big battle in the sky, and he loses. He's cast out again to Sheol. However, he does get his revenge by impersonating a snake in the Garden of Eden and tempting Eve, closing that loop. <laughs> so those are the two sort of stories about the fall of Satan. Interestingly, by the time we get to like 100 CE or 200 CE, like mainstream rabbinical Judaism, mm -hmm. not the like folk tale part of it, mm -hmm. had completely gotten shot of the idea of Satan as an oppositional force. Like they were like, no, Satan never rebelled. The idea that an angel could rebel against God is a distraction and a waste of thought. That makes sense because once Christianity starts, there are some things that like, so if you think of Christianity as like an offshoot of Judaism, mm -hmm. it, it takes all this Jewish mythology and, you know, kind of runs with it in a different direction right and there's several things that once christians run with them that jews are like yeah you can have that right we're not that interested this in that is anymore. very much one of those because yeah. like the period immediately before christ came about was a time of great turmoil in the jewish faith yeah. obviously uh and they were trying to work out what to keep and what to reject in terms of all of the influences that they have been exposed to 
And one of the things that rabbinical Judaism decided to refuse was the idea of a pure evil angel. You know, they're just like, don't talk to me about that. But like you said, Christianity decides to run with it. Yeah. Same with like the idea of the Messiah. You know, like obviously that's huge in the Old Testament. We talked about it over and over messiah and judgment day and all Mm -hmm. that and then like that gets really downplayed yeah nowadays like jews don't care about that at all you know it's very small and then it's like the entire like theology of some christians in traditional rabbinical judaism even satan in job for example is like consensus thought is it's a metaphor Mm. for the urge to to commit evil that is in every person not a description of a real angelology, hmm. you know, of a real, like, conversation or a real glimpse into the working order of the universe. But you keep, you keep specifying rabbinical Judaism. Does that mean that folk Judaism still hung on to the idea of Satan? I think folk Judaism hung on to a lot of stuff for a long time. Okay. And that probably varies by region. Almost certainly. Yeah. To get back briefly to the fall of Satan in the Bible. Mm-hmm. One of the places it is mentioned, sort of, but that has become a real important piece of literature for the idea of the fall of Satan is Isaiah 14. Yes. And this is the the morning star passage. That's right. right. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. I'm reading the NRSV, of course, because I'm a big brain smart I'm boy. I'm a big nursive. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. So a lot of people famously in the Vulgate translation of the Mm -hmm. Bible, the first translation into Latin, uh, Shining One or Daystar was translated as Lucifer. Right. Just because it means shiny or whatever. Right. Like loose as in light. Right. Which helped inform the connection a lot of people made between this speech and the idea of a fallen angel. Yes. Even though this speech is almost certainly a political one. Right. And it's, yeah, it that's not how it was intended by it, the author of Isaiah. Interestingly, it's suggested that this is actually an allusion to a story about a fallen angel. Oh, interesting. Something that a lot of people would be familiar with. But not Satan? But not Satan. Are we talking about the fuck angels again? That it was a common. It was just like a trope, like a metaphorical trope, like anybody can fall. Yeah, I think it. I think it is because there's there's a fa- famous fallen angel in Canaanite mythology. Okay. And there's another one in Babylonian mythology Whoa. as well. So it's it was a common thing that that cropped up a lot. Can you tell me anything about those? So the Canaanite one is. A fellow named Athtar, apparently. Athtar. A powerful semi-deity who rebelled against Baal but failed and was sent to rule the underworld instead. That sounds very, uh, very much like our Fall of Satan myth. And there's another Babylonian dude that did the same thing. I didn't write down his name, but... We'll just call him Derek. Yep. Derek did the same thing. He got all up in... Whose ass? Ur's ass? Who's the Babylonian <laughs> guy? Um... There's a lot of Babylonian guys. Anyway, he got up in somebody's ass and got sent to hell for it. Anyway, so harsh but fair. I think the idea is even if he wasn't specifically talking about the Satan in the Bible, Uh it was an allusion to a trope of a story, just like you said, that people would be familiar with and would be able to interpret in light of the political references. Okay, so it's not it's not too far off from the fall of Satan's. I don't think it's. I don't think it is adjacent. but, But then people get real into Isaiah and the other prophets speaking actual. Religious yeah, prophecy. Isaiah is the biggest one for that, Christians, right? For Christians to say that, like, oh, Jesus was predicted um, by Isaiah, which obviously isn't the case, but whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Reading things into Isaiah is a time honored tradition at this point. With that in mind, how does this biblical implication of, of Satan or the, the fall of Satan start to play into, like, Christian ideas? Right. So, okay. So, for this episode, you researched Jewish stuff. I researched Christian stuff. So as I was saying before, you know, Christianity will sometimes take a idea from Judaism and then that becomes more of a Christian thing because Jews are like, we don't need that anymore. You, mm-hmm. you know, go to town, buddy. Um, so this is also true with Satan. Um, and if there are two versions of the myth that you mentioned, mm-hmm. one where... 
Satan uh, just tries to overpower God, and one where he refuses to bow down to Adam. Mm-hmm. Christianity will uh, uh, be disruptive in the space. Okay. And introduce... I love disruption, personally. <laughs> I love it when it's seamless. Um, but Christianity will, will introduce a third version of this story, where Satan refuses to bow down to Jesus. Uh-huh. So it's it's similar to not bowing down to Adam. Yeah, but we're going to make they're it both uh, Christian now, sons of God, right? Yes, and so different denominations deal with this differently. As I was saying, like I had no knowledge of like any fall of Satan type narrative when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Um, but there are different like Catholics have kind of like an official version of the fall of Satan, and sure. the Orthodox Church has kind of an official version, right? But of course, the most famous and influential one is going to be. Paradise Lost by John Milton. Okay. So um, let's take a break, and then uh, we'll come back and talk about Milton. You got it. We'll be back in a couple of mins. See ya, babies. Bye. Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nico. And we are talking about the fall of Satan. In fact, we are talking about Paradise Lost by John Milton. Now you tell me about this book. Okay. Long-time listeners might have noticed that at the beginning of this episode, we did not do fast facts. <sighs> Funny about that. You know and what? long-time listeners might remember that I am on a personal quest to transform this podcast into just a, just a dull recitation of trivia facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm going to do some of that. Are you ready? Yes, please. Paradise Lost, published in 1667 in Ingerland. Okay. So think kind of the next generation after Shakespeare died. Okay. Um, like much of Shakespeare's work, it is written in blank verse, which is to say non-rhyming iambic pentameter. Nice. And... Um, after the first printing, they had to, when they did the second printing, they had to add a note at the beginning of the book that said, this poem doesn't rhyme because rhyming is for babies, so get over it. <laughs> apparently. Were people returning it? And being apparently like, they've gotten some listener mail. <laughs> I bought this book and it does not rhyme. Milton uh, was a Protestant and he was fine with any Protestant denomination. Not a big fan of the Catholics. Okay. Or the Jews. Or the Muslims. Yeesh. Yeah. Um, he was a supporter and employee of Oliver Cromwell. Okay. Not because he was a Puritan, but because he was a small-R Republican. He was for representative government. He didn't want a king. He didn't want a monarchy. Yeah. Um, and you can see how that might cause him to be interested in a story about defying a monarch, right. defying a king. Mm-hmm. Um. Especially the uh, usurpation, usurpation. I don't know. Especially the usurpment of uh-huh. the of the divine right, yes. right, which was the big thing. That was the big idea that kings were pushing back then. Yes, they're like, hey, God told me to be king. What are you are you gonna argue with that? You can't argue, except Oliver Cromwell did argue and mm-hmm. in fact successfully and in fact killed the king. But uh, with Paradise Lost, Milton was trying to write an epic poem, like. The Iliad or the Odyssey. Your Iliads, your Odysseys. Your Gilgamesh. Um, 
So he relies heavily on classical themes and tropes. So like throughout this entire book, it's very, very heavily like Greco-Roman references Mm -hmm. constantly. You know, it'll be like Greco-Roman referencing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Queensbury rules. Mm -hmm. Um, He'll, he'll, you know, he'll be like, oh, it's just like Achilles, you know, wore his shield, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, So that's really interesting to me because I feel like from very early on, Christianity. You wanted to be a gangster. (laughs) It's kind of like, what if Greco-Romans tried to do Judaism? You know, like ever since Paul made his mission spreading Jesus to the Gentiles, then within a couple hundred years, you've got Roman emperors as Christians. And then you've got all the Greco-Roman influences like slammed into the Jewish influences. Right. Um, And we don't think about it that way anymore uh at least not in america Mm -hmm. but it's like actually kind of the no i mean that's very true yeah a very smart point like paul is very much trying to reconcile a lot of that stuff like the philosophy the idea of like greek philosophy combined with jewish tradition and that's probably the stuff that like led to our current conception about jesus divinity like Mm -hmm. it it has influences from like oh, well, you know, in Rome, there was a lot of, like you would say, the emperor was the son of God. Right. So that influenced how we think of Jesus and, you know, stuff like that. So that's kind of the entire point of this book is mixing those two things. Hmm. So in in its own way, it's like a return to early Christianity in that way. Yeah. Knowingly or unknowingly. Yeah. Um. And like really, I guess says something about Christianity, probably unwittingly, but mm. but it's interesting, um, especially because you know the Greco-Roman gods are very humanish. Sure, they, you know they get jealous and they they're, yeah they're defined by their flaws rather than by their strengths. Right. They, they make mistakes. They do all kinds of stuff. Um, they interact with humans a lot. It's just that they're magical. They're more powerful. Right. Um, and so like, what if you applied that? kind of ethos to biblical figures what if you apply that to satan sounds fun sounds like a winner to me made a you know a humanized satan who was against monarchy and yeah what if he went to high school with abraham lincoln and the buddha and it was like way way back in the 1980s yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um okay so milton uses this this new christian version of the myth where satan refuses to bow down to jesus Mm. So in that version of the myth, just to be clear, Satan is all on board, still a pillar of the organization until God announces the plan to send his son down to Earth to save everybody. Well, here's the thing. Okay. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, like, look, if the boss was promoting his son over his top employee, you know, mm-hmm. I got to sympathize with the employee. The thing is that Christians had to retcon the creation story. Mm-hmm. And this is in most Christian denominations. They have to say that Jesus, because he is the same as God, part of the Trinity, was he, there. He existed since day one. During creation, mm-hmm. yeah. Or day zero, I guess. Since day zero, yeah. So in Paradise Lost, what happens is that, like, after all the angels are created, God mm-hmm. creates all the angels. Right. And then he creates Jesus, who is, like, his son, but also himself. Part of him, right. Yes. Yeah. And he tells all the angels to bow down to this new co-king that okay. he has and satan is like well <laughs> that's not what i signed up for like we established this whole hierarchy of angels and i was at the top <laughs> and you know maybe we didn't all have the same rank but we were more or less equal we were all you know the same kind of thing and now you're just bringing Making in up this new, new guy yeah, yeah. yeah and i'm not i didn't sign up for that um he should just be an angel same as the rest of us you know um, so he decides to rebel, and he gets a lot of angels on his side. He gets millions of angels, in okay. fact, about half of them in heaven. Okay. So that's a lot. Right. Yeah. It, it's pretty convincing. He gets like half the half the dudes on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have the big battle. That's actually in the middle of the book, but I'm just going to cut to the feeling here because this is an English major dropout. Um, but you enjoyed the battle, right? I heard you. Yeah. I heard you gasping and yeah <laughs> and whooping along with each, 
it wasn't blow looping. of the mace. Don't you dare accuse me of looping. No, but it's it is. It's really great, and it's like super dramatic battle scene, and they've got you know swords and shields and spears and stuff. For some reason, this is all already invented. Uh, and the first day of the battle, things are really even. Neither side is winning because there's like equal millions of angels mm-hmm. on each side. Um, and at one point, the archangel Michael is fighting Satan sure. hand to hand, and he slices through him with his sword. Wow. Michael slices through Satan with his sword. Um, and it goes all the way through him, and Satan is surprised to find that it hurts really bad. Hmm. He has never felt pain before. Um, but it, he like bleeds nectar, <laughs> and okay. then uh, the wound immediately heals back up because he's like an angel. But he's kind of like, oh, like I thought, I thought I was hot shit. I thought I was at the top of the hierarchy, and no one could possibly defeat me. And I just found out that I can get angel sliced pretty mm-hmm. bad. Right. Like our sides are. It's a powerful matched. metaphor for the moment that each of us is angel sliced. Right. <laughs> when you're angel sliced, that feel when you're angel sliced. Um, and like I thought I was gonna win this no problem, but our sides are really evenly matched. His his thought process is very analogous to like an entitled rich white person where he's like like he's never felt pain before uh-huh. but he thinks that he is owed everything sure he's he's angry that there's one step above him on the hierarchy when he's actually at the top of the hierarchy um but so okay so that night he puts a positive spin on it for his troops and instead of saying like oh, we're not quite doing as well as i thought we would he's like we're doing great we're doing better than i thought i would because mm-hmm. like god is supposed to be omnipotent, but we're evenly matched. So he's clearly not omnipotent. Yeah, you would think so. And I'm going to do something that's going to win, and that's invent cannons. <laughs> so then... <laughs> Wait, really? He invents cannons, and then they shoot... The next day they shoot cannons at the good angels, and the good angels are like, what the fuck is this? And they're all laughing at them as they get hit by cannonballs. Are you serious? Yes. That's dope as hell. Then the good angels decide to pick up mountains and throw them at the bad angels. And there, Nature's canon. There is actually like a parenthetical that's like, oh, yeah, um, heaven also has mountains. <laughs> it's just like there's like literally it's in parentheses. He hadn't even made the mountains yet. Well, he made them in heaven. Um, I guess you've got to test them out first before you put them in production. Right, right. Anyway. Gotta, yeah, prototype. Um, so... Then we cut to God's throne room, and he's in there with Jesus, who is actually never referred to as Jesus. He's only referred to as the Son or Messiah. Cool. Because I guess he hasn't taken the human form of Jesus yet. Right. Um, And he is telling Jesus, like, obviously I knew this war was going to happen. I'm God. I know everything. Mm-hmm. But I let them duke it out for a while because I'm all about free will. I don't want people to worship me. Just because I make them do it. They have to choose it freely. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Hmm. Does that square with your interpretation of the Bible? Um, It does not square with Presbyterianism, but it does square with other denominations. Um, And it was like a really big deal in the past. I don't know. You know, like, remember in high school English class that we were always reading, like, Moby Dick was all about, is it fate or is it free will? Mm-hmm. And now we don't really care about that. But it was like kind of a big deal back then. I don't know. It's a really big deal in this book. It's like the the entire founding ethos of God's like universe is like angels need to be able to choose whether they worship me. Humans need to be able to choose. They have to be able to choose or it's meaningless. Got it. So he's like, I let them all choose which side they're on. Um, but obviously I, I can defeat these dudes really easily. And in fact, I'm going to let you do it, son. So everyone knows. Jesus that, goes to war. So everyone knows that you're my co-king and you're equal to me and so jesus is like oh thanks dad and he gets to take the chariot from ezekiel like the what s- the sapphire throne that's pulled by yeah. like like wheels within wheels and the like four-faced angels and stuff he gets to take that out onto the battlefield and he just like one hit kills satan and all his armies <laughs> into a portal and sends him to hell <laughs> and it's great um dad can i borrow the keys tonight i Talk know about- right so the the very person who Satan was like, this guy isn't more powerful than me. I won't bend down to him. Like, that's, of course, the guy who defeats him. And what's really great about this, you can 
this this shit is so good. I never had to read this in school. This mm-hmm. is the first time I read it. It's so good because Milton makes you realize along with Satan just how outmatched he is. So every time it's like, oh, I didn't know I didn't know angels could get sliced. You like you realize that mm. at the same time as Satan does. Mm-hmm. So you go into it thinking like, oh, he's evenly matched. Like he's doing pretty good. And then it's like, oh, just kidding. Oh no. Oh, Jesus is gonna one hit kill him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like you you experience it along with Satan. You kind of sympathize with him. Um, okay, so now they're, you know, the rebellious angels all get sent to hell and now they're demons mm-hmm. and uh they in fact live in the capital city of hell, which is called Pandemonium. Yeah. Or all, all demons, demons, baby. Yeah. Uh Satan kind of gives a Braveheart speech where he's like, you know, it sucks that you know, heaven was super tight and now we have to live in hell <laughs> where it's all like creepy flames that don't cast light. Uh, but better terrain in hell than serve in heaven. That is a direct quote. That's the most quote. famous quote from the book, that right? That is a direct quote from it. Um, That's the one that all the action movies use when they're trying to sound badass. Right. And I you thought, really don't think that they've considered what they're I talking about. I thought it about. was a Hot Topic t-shirt, mm-hmm. but it is actually a quote from Paradise Lost. Because, um, I mean, Satan's deluding himself. Yes. And what's great is that, again, you you don't have really any more information than Satan mm. whenever, like, at this point in the narrative. So you're you're kind of deluded along with him. Mm-hmm. Um, we do this big roll call of all the fallen angels who are now demons, and they are all, like, Moloch and Dagon and all, like, the, the pagan gods from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then there's also, like, Osiris and Isis, like, because those are pagan gods, you know, that mm. the, the Egyptians worshipped, therefore they had to be demons in Milton's mind. Very harsh. And then also Titan and Jove and all the the Greek and Roman gods, those are all, they're all pagan gods, obviously, so they have to be demons. But it's weird because every other sentence is like, you know, just as Jove defeated Saturn, so... You know, God smote Satan, and but then like Jove is a demon, <laughs> like Jove is literally named as a demon. So you're like, okay, there's some wires crossed here. All that is before the first day of creation. Okay. So after that, now that Satan and his armies are down in hell, now God creates, let there be light, creates water, whatever, and creates earth and humans. And I don't know if this is Milton's invention or if he's just using this uh, framework that already existed. But in Paradise Lost, God creates the earth and creates humans kind of to make up for the lost angels because hmm. he lost half his angels. So he lost half his like worshiping power. And so he's creating a new world with new beings that will worship him to get back his power. Kind of. It it never says that like he's always omnipotent. He doesn't need to get back power, but like, Maybe the house just feels a little empty, yeah. you know, and he needs to just fill yeah. up his days with something. Um, But, of course, Satan has to go creep up there and, you know, tempt Eve and stuff. Yeah, creep and sneak. Yeah, yeah. he has to creep and sneak. Um, And so as he goes up there, God and Jesus are watching from above. And God explains that, of course, he loves free will more than anything. So the humans need... Especially if you're English. <laughs> the humans... Need to be able to decide whether they're going to be tempted or whether they're going to obey God and not eat the fruit from the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also says that, like, Satan chose to rebel from, like, first principles. And humans are only going to rebel because Satan tempts them to. I see. So, so it's not a valid rebellion. So they get, well, they get, like, a little more leeway. They can be saved. They can be saved. They're not automatically going to be sent down to hell. Um well, at first he's like, I mean, but they are like, I'm going to have to send them to hell if they sin unless unless someone here wants to sacrifice themselves. <laughs> and it says like all the angels in heaven like stayed quiet, like everyone just shuts up because everyone's like, not it. And then Jesus is like, I'll do it. And they're like, oh, Jesus, you're so amazing. Like you truly are the equal of God, blah, blah, blah. So um, Satan tempts Eve, of course. We know she eats the apple. She gets Adam to eat the apple. But there is one thing that I wanted to mention about Adam and Eve. Like half the book is with Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
the Archangel Raphael comes down to like talk with them and explain some shit. And just because we've mentioned the fuck angels, I want to mention that A, obviously, of course, Adam and Eve are naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it specifically says that Raphael like sees Eve naked but isn't tempted because he's not a fuck angel. <laughs> cool. Oh, <laughs> and okay. Then, he's one of the good ones. Yeah. <laughs> and then also Adam asks Raphael if angels have sex. Mm-hmm. And Raphael's like, I'm not going to say one way or the other, but... Just say no, dude. I will say that everything that brings you pleasure on Earth is even better in heaven. Wow. And, you know, imagine if you weren't constrained by physical bodies and you could just join souls in perfect desire. Talk about freaky. So, yes, the answer is yes, angels fuck. In fact, they super fuck. Anyway, humans get kicked out of Eden. Satan feels very triumphant. From from his point of view, he's gotten revenge on God by messing up the substitute angels. Okay, so he doesn't get to reign in heaven, but he is reigning in hell, and he can go around on earth and do whatever he wants and sure. tempt people. But of course, little does he know that God already foresaw all of this, and one day Jesus will die for everyone's sins, and then there'll be the final Armageddon battle, and sin and death and Satan will be defeated once and for all, and so that actually everything worked out for God's plan in the end. But based on that story, I mean, once God wraps this thing up, he's just going to do something to create more complications in the future. Seems like he's somebody that can never take just letting it, you know, be static. Well, you might say the same thing about Satan. Hmm. I might think about that, but I won't. And also, it's kind of interesting because what's so innovative about Paradise Lost mm-hmm. is that you sympathize with Satan, right? And his motivation is all really clear, and you see him when he's angry and when he's happy, and he's just like a totally fully drawn character, mm-hmm. much more fully drawn than Eve. By the way, this book is sexist as hell. Like Eve is a dumb bitch, and it's like like she has to do all the cooking, even though cooking doesn't exist yet. Like she has <laughs> to just like put fruit on the table, like unpeel fruit. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, Satan's like super humanized and sympathetic and you know that Milton sympathizes with the idea of not wanting a monarch, Sure, you know, so you get the idea that that's where all this sympathy is coming from, but he has to insert all this stuff about like, well, when the monarch is literally God and is literally perfect, like that's, that's fine. That's a good monarchy, but every other human monarchy, that's bad. Yeah. It's a very interesting stretch to create a scenario in which God ordains rebellions yeah. like god says there always need to be rebellions and people thinking for themselves and having free will you know and in any other case besides if the king is actually god you know it's actually it's actually good yeah but when the king is literally god that's good you gotta obey that king so that's paradise lost that's amazing so what do we think about this story of the fall of satan how are we going to rate this book when there's no book? <laughs> well, yeah, there's no book, first of all. But like, rate this myth. <laughs> <laughs> Does it fulfill some sort of role in in Christianity and Judaism? Like, obviously, it's a it's a popular story and one that has been around in some form or another for a long, 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 long time. I guess to me, I think what's appealing about it is that it it is more in the style of Greco-Roman gods, hmm. where it brings um, divine motivations down to a level that humans can understand. Mm-hmm. And we can all think about somebody rebelling, somebody not wanting to be controlled, somebody wanting to be more powerful than they are. That all we can relate to. And that makes it seem, uh, it's just easier to wrap your head around than an omnipotent, omniscient God sure. who, you know, can't microwave a burrito so hot that only he could eat you know what i mean (laughs) you know the famous burrito microwave absolutely uh paradox paradox thank you for me Mm -hmm. we've talked many times before about how sort of folklore and mythology like fills in the gaps of this stuff um specifically when we were talking about early christian writings and everybody was obsessed with jesus and jesus's story and his family's story yeah and they had to make up they had to make up a bunch of stuff stories about jesus's childhood and so in that same way, I think this story is is filling in a gap. Hmm. And the gap I think it's filling in is the issue of, I mean, it's like the thorniest religious issue, which is that. Why does evil, evil exist? Why does evil exist? Why, are, why do bad things happen at all if there's an omnipotent God? And I think it's much more palatable to believe in 
a force that's diametrically opposed to God. God always wants good for everybody, and, and the devil is always trying to tempt everybody and create evil in the world. And it's that balance that is much more reflective of people's real life than, you know, a good God that lets bad things happen, which that's is true. very difficult to understand. That's true. On like an intuitive level. So I think people really like this story and these stories about Satan because they explain why bad things happen. And they do it on a scale that's understandable. Yeah. All right, great. We solved all theology and nobody needs to go to church anymore. The list. (laughs) So how do we rate it? Well, I'll tell you, Paradise Lost gets a 9 out of 10 from me. Dope. Minus one because it's so fucking sexist. Right. (laughs) But like Adam was like, Raphael, I know that my wife is a dumb bitch, but sometimes I listen to her because she's so hot. And Raphael's (laughs) like, don't do that. Don't ever listen to her. (laughs) Oh, that's unpleasant. (laughs) But the 17th century is long over, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully there's no sexism anymore. Any opinions like that anymore. For me, the whole fall of Satan experience, I got to give that like six out of eight sliced angels. Sliced angels. This is, this is, of course, Eve had to unpeel and slice the angels. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Even though there was no cooking yet. It's pretty fun. It feeds into a lot of other fun uh, parts of, of Jewish mythology, like the angelology, demonology, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, uh, it was an interesting peek at sort of how other influences got into early Judaism and the Bible and Christianity, et cetera, et cetera. So pretty fun for me. Six out of eight. Excellent. Now, Lauren, we've been away for a minute. Yes, we have. And that has expressed itself <laughs> most clearly. We, in... didn't, we didn't check our email. We didn't check the Sunday School Dropouts email for the last like nine months. Because you have to understand that we moved from San Francisco to New York. We got hired. We got laid off. We got hired. We got... <laughs> we're taking math classes. Everything is very busy in our lives. And we're really sorry that we didn't answer any emails. There are too many to answer on air, so we will be responding to them individually. If you sent one and we haven't responded by the time that you are hearing this episode, please feel free to email again and just up it on the queue and we will respond. However, there is one email we need to address. It is from friend of the show, Brendan, aka We Are Foxhound on Twitch. I think I don't really know what Twitch is. I mean, I don't. I know what it is, but I never use it. But anyway, he sent us an email where he analyzed all of our ratings for all the different Bible books in seasons one and two. Finally applying data science to the thing it needs to be applied to, which is the nonsense that comes out of our mouths. Yes. So, for example, Jubilees, he writes, is indisputably ranked as the best book owing to Lauren's perfect score of 70 out of 70 raven yellings at. (laughs) Even just five fewer ravens would drop it down to number four, he says. (laughs) Apparently, Exodus narrowly edges out the tied Esther and Ecclesiastes for the number two slot, a surprisingly close fight for a book so filled with classic Bible content. Uh, Gospel of Luke is the highest ranked gospel. Um, Titus is the worst book. <laughs> Remember our our Titus episode? We barely even talked about Titus. And then he also looked at the biggest differences, like the ones where we rated books the most differently, uh, where I gave First John a tepid four out of nine concluding affirmations. While Nico gave it 69 out of 420 testimonies, Nico's score being very low, albeit, let's be honest, hilarious. <laughs> Lauren also gave the second epistle of John a score of zero, and I gave it a 50% score, so this is a strong differentiator. But uh, Brendan doesn't think it's reflective of a huge split in opinion on that shitty letter. I don't even remember like which one second John is, <laughs> but apparently I hated it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and of course, we do need to... Bless and curse uh, cats and dogs on this show. We will bless and curse your pets if you send us an email with a photo of the animal and its name. We will give it a biblical curse or blessing. Those are two very important parts of the process. And they're basically the foundation of the show. So we're going to be blessing dogs and cursing cats en masse here because we got so many beautiful animals coming to us electronically. To all the cats... Timothy for Graham, Freya, who is actually a turtle, for Brendan, unnamed neighbor cat for Steve, Mr. Ash for Thomas, unnamed neighbor cat number two for Liz, Teddy, Vader, and Skywalker for Justine, and Pancake 
who's actually a bunny. We had problems cursing a bunny, but we're going to do it because it's for Lucy. This is what I say to you. You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your harps, maggots, are the bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Wow. As for dogs, we have Brendan's dog, Polo, Peggy's dog, Blossom, and uh, Julie wanted a blessing for all the lost dogs who will never be reunited with their owners because their owners think that microchips are the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. Uh, To them, I say, oh, dogs. Best are all things as the will of God ordained them, his creating hand nothing imperfect or deficient left of all that he created. Beautiful. If you want to reach out to the show, send us a dog or cat, ask us a question, or maybe just say hello. We'll actually be checking the email now, so please email us at contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. You can also follow us on Twitter at SunSchoolDrop. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren E. O'Neill. O'Neill spelled with an A like Shaquille spells it. You can follow me on Twitter for things that are definitely not bits. All 100% true things on (laughs) my TL. I am at Nico Bakulich, N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-A. You can find him yelling about his peanut supper 100% sincerely on Twitter. Um, Of course, thank you to Nico as always for our engineering and mixing and whatever, editing. And thank you to Elise Carlton for our beautiful logo. We will be back in two weeks. That's right. We're changing the format of the show. Just a little slipperoo on you there. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, moms. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you in in two weeks. Um, There's so much more amazing stuff to talk about. I'm psyched to be back for season three. I could tell by the steely look in Lauren's eye that she is both psyched and determined to provide you with top-notch entertaining content. True. You're just going to have to wait, though, for now. My name is Nico. I'm Lauren. And we'll see you on the hell. On Sunday. Bye. Bye.